I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. A couple of announcements. Uh, as usual, when we're here at the Cowell Theater, there's a reception afterwards just down the street and around the corner at the Long Now Museum, shop, office, and party pad. Um, I'm told that outside, after the show as well as before, you can save $5 on tickets for the Maker Fair, which is coming up May 30th and 31st and uh, at the San Mateo County Expo Center. And one of the reasons that we're in cahoots with them on this is, one, it's a wonderful event. Um, makers are people who, as they say, rip the back off of technology and put their hands in where they're not supposed to and make things happen. And I guess an example of that, Long Now is going to be exposing for the first time one of the mountain-sized parts of the 10,000-year clock that we've been working on. This will be a... Uh, how heavy is it, Alexander? About 2,000 pounds. 2,000 pounds of gear. It's a, uh, the Geneva wheel for the clock, such as will go in the mountain. It's a working piece of apparatus that will work as you watch. If you put your hand in it, it will grind it probably flat. Um, that will be the first exposure of that piece of gear. And there's amazing things at the Maker Fair. I recommend it. Um, we had two talks in May, so we're going to skip June. Everybody can take a vacation. And at the end of July... Uh, the reply to part of Michael Pollan will be uh, Pamela Ronald and Raul Adamchak. He is an organic farmer of some major repute in California, teaches organic farming at the University of California, Davis. His wife is Pamela Ronald, and she is a um, head of a genetics engineering lab, plant genetic engineering lab at UC Davis. And um, they make a very strong case that that combination is the right thing to do for the future of food. That'll be July 28th. <clears throat> Paul Romer is a uh, economist who gets invoked a lot. Um, and the reasons are is that he's the, the, the primary founder and formulator of what's called New Growth Theory. And New Growth Theory was a formal and persuasive way to make sure that economic growth realizes, uh, ec economic understanding realizes the power of ideas. There's always talk about resources and these various economic balances and so on, but ideas in their own right are a powerful source of the creation of wealth. For a while now, I guess a couple of years, he's been working up on a new formulation, uh, which he's... <laughs> modestly calling a theory of history. And uh, this is the launch of that. There will be a series of presentations that he'll be making, putting this idea forth and putting it into application. So please welcome the first look at that set of ideas from Paul Romer. Uh, 
I hope it was clear from the title that uh, there was a certain amount of self-deprecation in the immodesty of uh, proposing a, a theory of history. Um, when I was a physics student, the typical exam question that we used to talk about that would be posed to us by our professors was uh, define universe and give two examples. And uh, I, I think accepting the assignment to propose a theory of history and give an application is almost as difficult or as foolhardy as that. But I hope uh, by the end of the evening I'll have persuaded you that there is some value to thinking about history from a very abstract theoretical perspective and value particularly from this point of view of influencing what we do now. Uh, sometimes we, uh, we look at theories, we can create theories like cosmology in part just because of their elegance, really as, as works of art, as some of the highest forms of uh, human uh, achievement. But this, uh, this talk tonight is not about a theory in that sense. It's really theory as a tool. I have a very specific application in mind, and uh, we'll come to that at the end. So when you judge the theory, uh, keep in mind that it's its application that matters, not uh, the elegance per se. But I'll still try and give you something which is tight, simple, has a few moving parts that I hope you'll, uh, you'll remember. Now, what should a theory of history be able to explain? Uh, at a minimum, it should be able to describe data like this. This is a measure of the wage in terms of the amount of light you could earn if you took your efforts as a worker, worked for an hour, then bought fuel with uh, the available technologies uh, at a particular point in time, and then used that fuel to produce light. Notice that it's a ratio scale, so over this uh, roughly 10, 12,000 year horizon, uh, we're seeing many orders of magnitude increase in the amount of light, the lumens of light you could get if you worked for one hour to get fuel to produce light. So the, the most striking fact uh, that a theory of history has to be able to account for is this kind of improvement, but it also has to explain the time pattern here. With this kind of plot, with a ratio scale on the vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis, slopes are growth rates. So the rate of growth uh, of this kind of measure of wage has been accelerating, uh, increasing over time. So this is what, uh, this is the, the sort of the minimum that any theory of history has to account for. Why is it possible for, for things to be getting so much better, and why have things been getting better faster as time has proceeded? Now, I've already said something about the available technologies at the time. You can't think about a chart like this without thinking about technological change. I've called out here one data point, which is the uh, point where Edison invented the electric light bulb. Uh, notice this was not the beginning of this rapid upturn. Even things like candles were very important technologies that led to big improvements compared to uh, sesame oil in a, in a stone lamp. But uh, the electric light bulb was, was clearly a very important part of this, uh, this general process. And, and we know that there's a series of technologies that, that lie behind, uh, behind that, that light bulb. Um, but we have to stop and think about, well, what, is it, what does it mean to say a technology? What do we mean by a technology here? And this is the, this is the theory part, the abstraction. How do we strip away the essential and get to the, to the heart of this? So what, what are technologies? Well, for electric light, there's a whole bunch of things that had to work together. There's generation, there's transmission, there's the light bulb. Let's, let's just strip this down to, to one, one very simple part. A simple technology is uh, a formula that says if you take iron and mix a little bit of carbon in with it, you can make steel. 
And then with steel, you can build things like the towers that are part of this uh, grand technology that leads to uh, light in, in people's homes. So you can break these complicated technologies down into very small parts, and they amount to formulas, recipes, instructions, but they're all about how to use the physical objects in the world differently, how to re rearrange them in a way that's more valuable to us as humans. Uh, another example that pulls down even to a more simple uh, kind of uh, application of this, this concept of a technology, one that many people have found uh, memorable, is the idea of the, the cups that you can get in any coffee uh, shop these days. It used to be that the cups and the lids, that, that the three different sizes of cups that you could typically find in a coffee shop, all had their own size lid, and somebody made the insight that if we redesigned the paper cups, you could use a single type of lid on all three cups. So it's a very simple idea about rearranging the physical objects in the universe around us, the, the wood that then gets turned into paper that then gets turned into cups. But if we did it in this slightly different way, it would save time, and it was the cumulative effect of any num a large number of innovations, technologies, formulas like this that drives, uh, that drives human progress and uh, these improvements in standards of living. Now, technologies have this remarkable feature that makes them very different from physical objects. They interact with people in exactly the opposite way that physical objects interact. As there were more people on Earth there was less land available per person. That's been a, a fact all throughout human history. So with physical objects, the more people you have, in some sense, the worse off each of us has to be. But what I'm going to argue now is, is that with technologies, the more people we have, the better off we can be. Because with technologies, these ideas, these formulas, these recipes are things that we can share and all use at the same time. So you and I may not be able to both farm the same square meter to raise our organic food, but you and I can both use an insight about crop rotation or fertilizers or a new type of, a new type of seed. So what this means is that if you think about a historical dynamic where you have more people, there are more people to go out and make discoveries, which leads to more of these technologies, but because everybody can share the technologies, uh, that means that you have more technologies per person. More technologies, more ideas per person, therefore leads to, to more people. And then more people further spurs the discovery process, which spurs uh, the, makes it possible for more and more people to, to live on a given, uh, given piece of land. So that you can think about the broad sweep of uh, human history up until relatively recent times as being a positive feedback loop between people and technologies that comes from this special characteristic of shareability of the, of the technologies. Now, it wouldn't have to be the case that new technologies alone would, uh, would dominate the scarcity effects of less land. It could have been the case that as we had more and more people, having f less land per person led to less food per person, and no amount of discovery could overturn that result. So we might have lived in a very harsh world like that where there just wasn't enough to discover that could offset the effects of, of scarcity. But judging from human history, that's not the kind of world we lived in, we have lived in. We have much more food per capita, even with much less land per capita than we had before, and it's because of all of the discoveries that we've been able to make. 
So the simple story about this acceleration over time in uh, the standards of living comes from positive feedback between discovery and more people, and then combined in the most recent period with a switch from patterns of fertility where up until very recently, new technologies led to more food, which led to more people, which did not lead to, more, uh, to higher standards of living. But in, in the last several centuries, humans have gone through the demographic transition, which meant that at some point, the, the number of people did not keep up with the new technologies that were, dis were being discovered. Income per person started to go up. That set off another kind of explosive dynamic, which was as income per person starts to go up, for reasons that I think are still not clear, humans end up deciding to limit fertility. So population growth couldn't keep up with this accelerating process of technological change. Standards of living eventually start to rise. That led to a fall in fertility, and that makes standards of living grow even faster. So that gives you a kind of a simple technological determinism theory of history that can explain uh, the broad pattern of accelerating progress over time. But now what we need to do is bring another critical element into this story. And I want to I tell that as follows. Um, there, there's, a, there's a scholar who's looked at books about manners during, uh, during the Middle Ages. And the kinds of things that these manners books would teach people who wanted to learn how to behave in, appropriately in modern society were injunctions like this. That if you're at the table eating dinner and you need to spit, don't spit across the table over the food of the people eating across from you, but turn over your shoulder and spit behind you. So, you know, these things seem like things that we would, uh, you know, how could anybody not know that? But if you go back in time to, uh, to hunter-gatherer societies, you know, you didn't really have to worry very much about where you could spit. So as, as we went through this process of more technology leading to more people, leading to more technology, and increasing density of people, all of a sudden we started to have interactions with each other which called for rules for managing potential uh, negative spillovers between, between people. Let me give you another example. Uh, we've had a number of technological innovations in fishing. Better ships, better lines, better nets, ways to catch fish much more efficiently so a given number of people or a given amount of capital investment can catch many more fish. Without the right kinds of rules, those technological advances can do an enormous amount of harm to the world's, uh, uh, to the world's fisheries. And in fact, uh, in many cases, unfortunately, they have. In a few cases, we've actually been able to supplement those technological advances with appropriate rules which limit the catch to the sustainable yield. And then you get the benefits of technology. It takes less human effort to catch the sustainable yield of fish without any of the harm. So for both of these reasons, spillovers associated with density and potential side effects, negative side effects associated with technology, we need to think about rules as well as technologies. So the the theory of, uh, of history that I want to propose here is one that involves two different types of ideas. That when we contrast the, the properties of scarce physical objects that can't be shared with ideas which can be shared and can be reused, we want to think about technological ideas, but also rules. So we've spoken about the, the technologies. Technologies are just ways to rearrange physical objects to make them more valuable to us. Uh, let's think about what, what rules are. 
Well, rules are just ways to structure the interactions that people have with each other. So if technologies are just structuring physical objects, just structuring matter in ways that are more valuable, rules are structuring our interactions to make sure that we get the most value out of those interactions. They could be as simple as drive on the right or drive on the left. doesn't really matter which one you pick, but you better pick one as density of uh, road traffic starts to increase. Just notice for reference that we'll come back to in a minute that once you pick one of these conventions, it becomes hard to change. So if you end up in uh, an area where your rules are drive on the left, where everybody else around you is drive on the right, it might be efficient for you to switch uh, your, your system, but it may be very hard to do. So rules can be as simple as uh, driving on the left or on the right. Um, another very important rule in human history was the concept of, of ownership. Think back again to hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, ownership was not an important concept or convention there. But as, uh, as we developed, we established this new convention that we would assign to certain people the concept of ownership over a particular piece of property, which meant that no one else could take advantage of that property without the approval of uh, the person who, uh, who had this, this ownership right. And then associated with this, this ownership right were conventions about what do you do when those rules are, are violated. Any rule like this amongst humans will end up with violations. Early in human history, violations of rules like uh, challenges to one's honor or theft of, uh, theft of uh, property like, like animals uh, in most societies led to overwhelming retribution and vengeance in, in response. Over time, we evolved a notion of the right way to respond to a violation of these conventions about ownership with, was with a notion of damages rather than violent retribution. Damages which were proportional to the harm and which rather than destroying value, just shifted value from the person who caused the harm to the person who, uh, who suffered it. So ownership carries with it lots of conventions, lots of rules about what does it mean when we stick to, the, to these rules and then how do we respond when people uh, don't stick to them. Uh, more recent forms of rules uh, are the rules that support open science. In science, we reward someone who makes a discovery not by, by giving them an ownership right, but by giving them recognition. And the key to getting recognition for a discovery is to be the first one to publish it. So priority is the critical determinant of who gets the recognition, the prize, the rewards in the scientific community. That, of course, creates strong incentives for people to get information out as soon as they discover it. That turns out to be a very good rule for taking what's known in science, getting it widely shared so others can then take what you've discovered and build on it to make a, a subsequent discovery. So these rules can interact with the technologies that we described uh, a minute ago. The, the discovery of the potential for cultivating wheat led almost inevitably to the evolution of rules about ownership of land. That if you're cultivating a piece of land, you need to, to have an incentive to do the work uh, that's required to make the wheat uh, grow. You need to be able to capture the returns from that. You can't let others come in under the conventions of, say, hunter-gatherer societies and just take whatever uh, they want whenever they want. So this is a case where a technological development uh, almost surely spurred the, the, new sets of, the new sets of rules. There are other cases where it goes the other direction. The patent system in the United States was a very important 
collection of rules, which were different from the rules of open science, but which gave Thomas Edison the potential for monetary gain if he could come up with a, a better incandescent light bulb, and that was a critical force spurring him to make the discovery that led to the, uh, the first uh, practical light bulb. But uh, in parallel, we had the institutions of science, which were developing Maxwell's equations and all of the understanding of electricity and, uh, and magnetism, which were required for building out the transmission systems for developing the dynamos. So it took both the institutions of property and patents and the institutions of science to get those kinds of uh, discoveries that led to the light that we saw in the, the, very, first, uh, the very first slide. Now, the discussion so far makes it sound as if good rules will be forthcoming whenever we need them and whenever we want them. But uh, if you look around the world, we see that the story about the evolution of these rules is actually much more complicated. A good indication of that is to just take the map of the world at night and uh, look at the various sources of light and then zoom in on one particular area, uh, the Korean Peninsula. In the Korean Peninsula, there is literally a black hole where there is no light, but we know many people live there. The same technologies that generate light for people everywhere else in the world could be used in North Korea, but something clearly prevents those from actually being uh, put to use there. So there's something very extreme about the rules in North Korea, which mean that existing technologies don't get used there, and certainly important new technologies don't get discovered there. So there's a potential for rules to turn harmful, to slow us down, and uh, sadly, for those to persist for very long periods of time. Again, think back to the story about driving on the left versus driving on the right. From the broad historical perspective, China is the case that most calls out for this amendment to the simple story of a feedback between people and technologies because China was in the Middle Ages, as that story would predict, well ahead of the rest of the world. There's a whole list of important technologies that were developed first in China, like steel, like gunpowder, decimals, the wheelbarrow. The list goes on and on. But around, uh, around 1,000, 1,200 with the Ming Dynasty, a new set of rules were imposed in China that brought progress there to a halt, technological progress there, and which kept them for centuries from even being able to take advantage of technologies that were developed in other parts of the world. Uh, to show this in a, in a graph, the, uh, the scale here now is a linear scale of income per capita in 1990 dollars. So if we converted to today's dollars, the numbers would look a little bit bigger. These are estimates of, and these are very crude estimates, but estimates of income per capita going back to the year uh, 1000 in uh, China and whoever was the world leader at various points in time. And, and if you looked, if we zoomed way in on that point 1000, the historical estimates are that at that point China was ahead. But China then entered into almost a thousand years of stagnation as the leading countries in the world went zooming, uh, zooming far ahead. So there's a potential for new rules like the patent system, like open science, to speed up the rate of technological change and speed up discovery, speed up improvements in standards of living. So that acceleration we saw 
in the, in the leading countries is not just a function of more people leading to more discoveries, but in recent periods, it's been more people discovering because there are rules that give them better incentives to discover and better ways to work with each other as they all engage in the discovery process. So rules can amplify this accelerating process that uh, was first driven just by pop uh, population growth, but rules can also stifle and slow progress down and can do so for many centuries. So the, the theory of history that we have to work out here is one where we allow for this dynamic of, of technology, but we think about what's the underlying dynamic of the rules. Why do rules sometimes get better in a way that makes everyone better off? Why do rules sometimes trap us in a way that uh, seems so, so harmful to all and so wasteful? Now, to think about what the dynamic is, um, I want to invoke an analogy at this point. I want you to think not about countries, but think about companies for a minute. And zoom in to a much narrower piece of history. Think about the recent IT revolution in, in the United States. Uh, go back to innovations uh, that started at IBM with the 360 line of mainframes and uh, the emergence of centralized computing in important, uh, important commercial applications. Then think about the emergence of a company like Wang, which pioneered the, was one of the companies pioneering the development of computing that was closer to the user and applications like word processing which became uh, available to users when the computing power was closer. Wang emerged, uh, competed with IBM, de developed an important niche, but uh, was, was soon eclipsed. Uh, Apple came in with uh, was one of the first companies, others had tried, but one of the first companies to move computing all the way uh, to the end user. IBM then responded with its own personal computer. Personal computers took off. Word processing became available on personal computers. Wang completely lost the, the word processing business. But throughout this process, the applications and the functionality we could achieve all got, all got better. Critical elements in this dynamic were things like new entry. At one point, there was no Wang computing. At one point, there was no uh, Apple. But those companies could enter, do things differently. When they enter, there was a process of copying. So Apple pushes the, the PC. IBM copies with its own version of the PC. There are also cases like, uh, like at Wang where there's really no future for that organization. And workers and customers get reallocated to other companies selling other products, developing other products, and Wang shrinks, but progress for the system as a whole moves ahead. So imagine, imagine what, uh, what would happen, what would happen if we couldn't have any new companies? Your first reaction might be, well, Moore's Law should still operate, technology should, could, should still keep improving, but if you look at the history these social organizations, these people working together under particular rule sets, were critical drivers of technological change. And the kind of rule set that was operating at IBM was very powerfully, power, powerfully productive for some period of time, but it, it uh, became less effective uh, in, a later, in a later period. New organizations emerged, 
where a whole collection of people operated according to a different set of rules were able to compete with IBM, take some of its business away. IBM changed some of its rules and in response to this competition, but other organizations like Wang uh, did not. If we couldn't have that process of competition that drives IBM to change, that brings in the ideas from Wang or brings in the ideas at Apple, it's, it's very likely that we would have had much slower progress in the IT industry. And this is a kind of a warning to, our, to ourselves that the rules really do matter here, that we can't just think of the technologies as operating according to their own, uh, their own uh, inherent uh, time clock. And we can, we can arrange things so that there are new countries, uh, new companies that emerge or, or not. And it's very important in our economy that we can, in fact, have new, uh, new companies. Now, let me tell this story again about countries instead of companies. So think about, uh, think about the process of world leadership in uh, productivity. The Netherlands in the 16th and early 17th century was the, the world leader in commercial uh, establishments that developed stock markets. They, they pioneered the, the financial crisis with the, with the tulip bubble. Um, it was, a, it, was a, it was a country which attracted many migrants from throughout, uh, throughout Europe, uh, grew very rapidly because of that, uh, that migration, and for a period was the, was the world leader. But then, over time, leadership moved to the United Kingdom. We saw the early applications of engineering, applied science, the harnessing of, of power to the, to the textile industry uh, for a hundred years or more with the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, the UK was the, was the world leader. Then, uh, then the United States came in, at first well behind, uh, well behind the UK, copied the technologies that were available in the UK, but changed some of its rules about things like our patent system compared to the British patent system. Ours was much more democratic, much easier uh, for small inventors to get access to. We pioneered a very different form of universities and a very different commitment to, to education. And because of those different kinds of rules, we became, uh, we became the world leader. So in this chart that I showed you before about world leadership, this is the point where the Netherlands uh, takes over as the world leader. This was the point where the UK takes over. And then this most recently is uh, the spot for the United States. The same kind of dynamic that we talked about in terms of uh, companies operates uh, amongst these, these countries as well. There was new entry. The United States, in particular, was a brand new country with new rules, very different from the rules that others had used. Uh, we saw cases of, of copying. The United States copied technologies and rules that worked well in Britain. Uh, Britain, after World War II, copied things that had worked well in the United States. We've also had uh, cases of, of large-scale migration. I mentioned the migration into, uh, into the Netherlands uh, in the, the period when they were surging ahead. The United States, as a new nation, of course, attracted many migrants as well and continues to attract migrants in those areas uh, with those sets of skills that we're, we'll, uh, we're, we'll let them come in. So entry, migration, uh, copying, all operate at this same scale between countries just as they do between uh, companies. And to just illustrate that process, let me just tell you a little bit more of the story of, of Pennsylvania as a new set of rules, its own country, until it became part of the, the new United States. Pennsylvania was a dominion that was given to William Penn by King Charles II. 
Penn set out the charter, wrote down a charter for Pennsylvania, and innovated in terms of the rules in certain things like uh, legally protected guarantee of, of religion. Penn said, this is the way Pennsylvania will be run. Then people who were interested in uh, living under those kinds of rules were attracted to Pennsylvania. Penn actually went to um, the Netherlands in 1670 and tried to, tried to recruit people from there as well as from Germany to come live in his new, uh, his new country. And ultimately, other colonies in the United States copied this innovation of a legally guaranteed right to freedom of, revolution, uh, to freedom of religion, and it became uh, a part of our, uh, our Constitution. Notice that in this process, the dynamic that we usually think about as the one that drives innovations and rules, people vote to have a change in the rules, or they vote to have some representatives who then go change the rules. This was not the dynamic that got us a legal protection of the freedom of, of religion uh, in, this, in this period. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what if, what if there were no new countries? What if, because of the conventions that we've now established uh, about protecting boundaries, uh, what if, because of those conventions, that no country can invade another country, we stop this process of the introduction of new national rule sets that can compete with existing ones, that can innovate in ways that the existing ones find hard to, uh, to innovate with? So think about how, how did we create a new country in the United States. We actually did it through, through military conquest. I mean, Penn, Penn was given, quote, the land by King Charles II, but there were people living here. And uh, Penn, Penn was actually relatively uh, uh, humane about this and tried to pay the Indians who were living there to leave. But in a sense, we were able to create a new country in the United States because of violent military conquest of a piece of land that was occupied by some other people and said, we're going to take whatever rule system was there in, in place before and put in place a new one. So should we, should we rethink this convention about giving war a chance? Should we, uh, should we try this again? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, this was basically the logic behind thinking about the invasion in Iraq and the invasion in Afghanistan. There are many conflicting and complicating factors in the invasion in Iraq, but the invasion in Afghanistan was something where there was broad international consensus that this was the right thing to do, to go in militarily and try and change the, the rule system that was in place there. Um, and it still turned out uh, very badly. So for better or for worse, um, it's almost certain going ahead that we're not going to see the kind of conquest of territory that led to the introduction of uh, Pennsylvania as a new colony or the United States as, as a new country. And then the question is, does this, does this mean that this dynamic of competition and entry and reallocation, which drove improvement in the rules, which in turn drove improvement in the technologies and, and standards of living, are we about to enter a phase where this process is, uh, is shutting down? So what what I want to get you to think about, the application now, if the theory of history here is it's the, it's the co-evolution of rules and technology, which have driven progress, and that rules have progressed in the same way that industries progress through competition, entry, reallocation, copying, what if we could continue that entry process without some form of conquest? Could we as humans come up with rules about how we change rules? so that we create this potential for ongoing innovation, even at the level of national rule sets. Now, to try and build the case that 
that application of this theory is possible, that we can keep coevolution of rules and technology moving ahead, and we can do it through entry, competition, reallocation, migration. Let me talk about how China got out of the trap that it was stuck in for, for a thousand years. Because of a historical accident that did involve conquest, so this part doesn't generalize, but because of a historical accident, a very small piece of China was under a different system of administrative control from the rest of China. It was under the control of the British. It was a place like Pennsylvania that people could come to if they wanted to live under a different set of rules than, say, the rules that were operating uh, on the mainland. The rules that the British brought into Hong Kong were the modern rules that we take for granted of, uh, of a modern economy. Hong Kong, especially in the post-World War II era, grew very rapidly as a commercial, initially commercial manufacturing center, later as a, as a, financial, uh, as a financial hub. Uh, Hong Kong grew very rapidly. The Chinese watching this demonstration effect uh, close by started to take advantage of it by creating four special ec economic zones uh, along the, the coastline in China where rules that had been developed in Hong Kong could be brought in one at a time in small measure within these special zones. So the Chinese did not try uh, to change everything in the whole nation all at once but when the leadership was persuaded that they really did have to move forward as a nation instead of continuing to lag farther and farther behind, they were able to take advantage of the close experience of Hong Kong and then replicate it in other special small zones uh, where the rules and then the technologies of the modern world were brought into China. That was then followed by a series of uh, cities along uh, the coast uh, in China. So this gradual evolution from one very small spot to, to several others. And the upshot was that uh, whereas the last graph that I showed you stopped in 1950, now with a slightly different scale because it's $2,000, uh, dollars in purchasing power of the year 2000, uh, you can see how starting in the 1970s, income per capita finally starts to grow in China and then takes off and goes through this, this surge, this unprecedented increase in standards of living, uh, uh, this, this, this increase at rates that we've never seen before in, in human history. Uh, if you want to see this in ratio terms relative to the United States, this shows you income per capita in China uh, as a percentage of income per capita in the United States. And you can see that there, there's no catch up at all through the, through the 1970s, and then this astonishing process of convergence that's taken place since, uh, since the late 1970s. So the changes in the rules that the Chinese were able to implement by starting with small areas, by experimenting with those areas, by using those areas as places where you could copy not just the technologies that are idea-like and copyable, but even copy the institutions uh, by bringing them in first to Hong Kong, then to the rest of China. This process of copying rules and technologies enabled this astonishing uh, improvement in standards of living and the, the force which is just turning the, the corner for the world so that worldwide income inequality is now finally starting to shrink rather than grow, partly because of that continuing divergence that we saw for almost a thousand years between the West and China. So what would it take to generalize from this, this Chinese experience and create the potential for new entry at the level of 
national rule systems. The first thing we'll have to do is rethink sovereignty. Sovereignty has many components. There are two that I want to distinguish here. One is sovereignty in the sense of internationally recognized borders. And we have come worldwide to a new consensus that internationally recognized borders cannot be violated. And that's an extremely important development in human history. Uh, it will mean that we will no longer have wars of conquest of territory uh, or, for that matter, uh, conquests like the ones that, that led, to, uh, led to the Pennsylvania, but we won't have wars like World War I and II either. That needs to be preserved and almost surely will be preserved going forward, but you can distinguish sovereignty in the sense of the ultimate say over what happens within a, board, within a kind of a predefined set of borders, you can distinguish that from a notion of administrative control. That on paper, what the British had in Hong Kong was a delegated responsibility for administrative control within a piece of sovereign Chinese territory. And if we think with open minds, there are many places around the world where the sovereign territory of one nation could be granted to, granted, uh, given administ administrative responsibility for that piece of territory could be granted to other nations or consortiums of nations, to partnerships, to other kinds of groups who could facilitate the transfer not just of technologies but even systems, systems of rules. And there's no reason why this couldn't be negotiated voluntarily. Looking back, Hong Kong was probably the most successful economic development program in human history. There's no reason why something like that couldn't be done intentionally, voluntarily, as part of a, uh, a mutually beneficial agreement, rather than by the kind of force that, that, set up, uh, that set up Hong Kong. So if we distinguish the borders from who's in control and are willing to think flexibly about who's in control, there are many more options which will open up here. And this is particularly powerful if you think about setting up new systems of control in areas where almost no one lives. Because then you could replicate something like the dynamic in Pennsylvania, where you could propose new rules, different rules from those applying uh, locally, perhaps even different rules than apply anywhere in the world, and people can choose to opt in and operate under those, those new kinds of rules. So you could have much more experimentation much more freedom for people to, to move into to new places and continued progress in the sense of uh, competition between systems of rules. The other piece that we'd probably need to, to make this work is to rethink citizenship. That you can think about citizenship as partly being about residency. You can be granted residency rights in a particular place, but citizenship typically involves some notion of voice as well some ability to, to vote or to have some control over the political system. But we're already used to distinguishing between these two, these two notions. There are people who can move into uh, one country as, foreign res as residents, but who are not nationalized citizens and who therefore don't have voice. So you can imagine in these new administrative un units, people who might move there, who might retain their citizenship rights in the sense of voice, uh, retain that in their country of origin, but not necessarily have the same kinds of rights, of rights of voice in the place that they move to. And some other group of citizens might be the ones who actually uh, have voice and uh, voting over the, the rules in one of these administrative, uh, 
uh, administrative zones. Hong Kong had that characteristic. Hong Kong was under democratic control in the post-World War II era. There were voters in, in the UK who elected a prime minister who appointed an administrator for Hong Kong. So it was not a case of authoritarian rule, uh, but in fact it was a case of democratic rule. It just turned out not to be a democracy that involved the local, the local residents. Everyone in Hong Kong lived there in the same way that someone uh, with a green card might come and live in the United States. And if we're willing to allow for that kind of possibility, again, it could free up our notions about exactly where in the world and under what circumstances and what kinds of terms new kinds of uh, economic and uh, political arrangements could be uh, put in place. The last thing that uh, we have to do to, to deliver on this program is to rethink scale. If you think about economic development, which is the application that most concerns me, we typically think of either the village or the nation. We'll do something that will change things at the level of the village or the nation. But go back to that discussion we had earlier about the power of more people leading to more ideas, leading to uh, economic benefits. The modern representation of that power of ideas that we gain access to from immediate access to people are urban areas. We cluster in urban areas because we want those benefits of being around many other people. And we suffer the costs of having a lot less land per person because the ideas per person that we can have are so much greater in a city. So the scale to think about this kind of new development and for changing the prospects for um, for all poor countries in the world right now is the same kind of scale that the Chinese were thinking about when they looked at Hong Kong, then had the special economic zones, then the, the open cities. We need to think about city-states as the, as the unit where we could undertake this kind of innovation and create, uh, create the opportunities for very different kinds of uh, systems of rules and very rapid translation of the benefits from the rest of the world to those, those new cities. This is going to be an extremely important challenge for the world to face in the coming century. Something on the order of five, five or more, potentially as many as eight billion people will, if economic growth takes place at any kind of reasonable rate, five to eight billion people will want to move to cities, will be able to move to cities. A very small fraction of the world population will be left in rural areas producing all the food we need. And um, almost everyone will want to lead, live in cities and it will be an enormous challenge for us to provide the kinds of well-run cities that can lead to real economic benefits, real improvement in standards of living, rather than the kinds of dysfunctional cities we see in some parts of the developing world where the existing rules aren't able to keep up, can't improve, can't cope with the challenges that they face. So what if we really needed places for billions of people, five, five billion people or more? How much land on Earth would it actually take? If you take the world surface area, represented as dots, compress it to uh, uh, a rectangle like this, and then ask, suppose people could move into places like Hong Kong, so Hong Kong-like densities. How much land uh, would it take to create urban areas for eight billion people? It turns out it's a tiny fraction of the surface area on the Earth. And there's an enormous amount of land on Earth, which is right now very underutilized, not suitable for agriculture, 
but could easily be used to create these new urban, uh, urban spots. So finding the land uh, would really be no challenge in carrying out a program like this, even at scale. The challenge will be for us to rethink things that we've taken for granted about rules and how rules change, how people opt into them and opt out, how they control them, what options they have, and what kinds of arrangements countries can enter into about what to do within their own borders, what ways existing countries can uh, work together to create new kinds of arrangements that transfer rule, technology, rule systems as well as technologies across borders. So there's really nothing but certain kinds of presumptions and uh, emotional reactions that hold us back from doing something that could be terribly important for helping people throughout the world catch up and potentially even keeping technology going at the frontier. There's a, there's a law that's referred to as Cardwell's Law that says that no nation remains technologically innovative for long. We've been able to enjoy continued accelerating economic uh, growth and technological innovation, but only because that process of innovation has been able to move to different places across the globe. Now, we'd like to believe that the United States will remain the worldwide leader forever into the, the far future, but if you take uh, the long now time frame seriously of the next 10,000 years, history doesn't give you a lot of confidence that any nation, even the United States, can remain the technological leader. But if there's still some potential for new places to emerge, new systems to be tried, places where new people can go, often young, innovative people, uh, the ambitious people who moved into Holland, this may be important not just in helping uh, the rest of the world catch up, but even keeping innovation going at faster and faster rates out at the, out at the cutting edge. So there's a, there's a big challenge in, re, in just getting ourselves to rethink what's possible, what we could do, but there's an, an enormous amount at stake here. This map uh, zeroes in on, on Africa, which is the other part of the world which right, right now stands out as being very, very devoid of light. There's very limited... Uh, GDP, very limited opportunities for people to, to, consume, uh, to consume light there. And if you want a picture to remember about what that means in terms of the quality of life, remember this picture. This is a picture of students in Guinea reading their textbooks at the airport because this was the only place where they could get light at night to do their, to do their schoolwork. It's a solved technical problem about how to generate electricity and get it to homes so students don't have to go sit at the airport to read their books. And it's a solved, it's a solved political social problem to create rules that can lead to the implementation of those technical systems that get light to these, uh, to these kinds of uh, young people. So as you evaluate this theory of the history and this, this application, and you run up against the inevitable reaction that we could never create new countries. You could never have an agreement to set aside a piece of territory and create something like a Hong Kong. You could never have a place where people opt in and opt out, uh, but where uh, the political control might be from a very different location. But as you think about all of, those, all of those objections, think about explaining it to one of these kids and telling them why we think the best solution is for you to just spend as long as it takes you know, maybe another thousand years, as in China, to wait for 
somehow your own internal systems of rules to transform so you can get access to the kinds of things that we, we take for granted. Thanks. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.